Welcome to Canada in the World. Uh, my name is Besma Wameni. I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo in the Balsley School of International Affairs and a senior fellow here at CG. I'm very happy to have with me in studio both Daryl Bricker and John Ibiston to talk about their new book, Empty Planet. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having us. So let's talk about your new book, uh, The Empty Planet. It is uh, provocative. It is timely. I think all of us who are watching what's happening in the world from populism to this rising anti-immigration sentiment to our own uh, sort of wrestling with what are the benefits of immigration and, of course, to the reality that there are many countries that are indeed having a declining population and it's going to affect us all and you guys really laid out in this book this fantastic way of making us realize how population decline in all parts of the world affect us even here in Canada okay so let me just start let's go back a little bit Daryl start us off what is it that you want people to get from this book what's the you know overarching message well, that sometimes science that we think is settled really isn't settled, and that uh, when you really do look at something as important as population um, increases or decreases, particularly when they're published by uh, such reputable groups as the United Nations, that maybe you should just take a moment and go take a look and see at how they how they came up with what they came up with before you assume that this is what the future is going to be. So John's uh, point and my point in all of this is let's start with what we call vertical knowledge, which is this idea that uh, everybody agrees to, uh, you know, this particular point and, and really see if we can find out whether or not it happens to be true. So that's, that's where the book started. That's the thing that we wanted to get at, which was this idea that the world's population is exploding and we will get to the, uh, you know, 11.2 billion people by 2100. Is that, is that actually true? And, and what we discover as we go through the book, as you go through the journey with us, that's probably not going to happen, actually very likely that it's not going to happen. We'll probably get down to somewhere between eight and nine billion people in the population of the world is going to start to decline, and we don't know how far it's going to decline. So that's a very counterintuitive argument, certainly definitely different from what a lot of people are talking about, and that's really the, the main point of the book. And you're a numbers guy, so that's the beauty of getting the data, right? Putting numbers to this, and what you point in this book is that, you know, do all the projections, and it's not as, as catastrophic as everybody talks about. Well, because what we really are talking about here is, is data, but also the assumptions around models. Models. And unfortunately, I think you get a lot of people who just repeat this type of vertical knowledge as being settled science and fact, and they don't ever really go back and take a look at the assumptions. And so what we did was we looked at the assumptions and found out there were some holes and reported on a bunch of other demographers who actually uh, have uh, a different point of view to what the UN came up with and I think are probably closer to the what's actually going to happen. But then what John and I also did uh, along with that is we went around the world and we looked at what was happening in these various places, and lo and behold, we found a lot of particularly cultural truths that related to why this was happening and really explained what was going on with the population. Yeah, and so, Daryl, if you're the numbers guy, John, you're the story guy as a journalist. I mean, you see things through the lens of stories, and traveling around the world, you've painted this amazing picture of all these vignettes of what's happening, but what stands out to you in terms of that vignette that you want to share with us that's in this book? I think one is the extent to which circumstances were so different, I mean, uh, in so many different parts of the world, and yet the core message that we were hearing was the same. So if you talked to 30-somethings at a dinner party 
in Brussels, or you talk to university students um, at Seoul National University in Seoul, or you talk to aid workers in a favela in Sao Paulo, uh, or to women, uh, young mothers in a slum in New Delhi. You heard the same thing from all of them, though their circumstances are very different, their affluence was different, uh, the amount of empowerment that they experienced as women were very different. Their desires were the same, and the desires were to control the number of children they had, to keep it to one or two, um, so that they could live the life that they wanted to live and not necessarily the life that their mother had lived. <clears throat> and that, in many cases, uh, it was a contest between their desire to control the number of children they wanted to have and the desire of men, especially in the developing world, of men to, have, to make them have more children. Uh, one of the reasons that we think the United Nations Population Division is wrong and that we are only going to get to about $9 billion at most and then start to go down is that in that contest, especially in the developing world, it seemed very clear to us that the desires of the women were going to trump those of the not-so-enlightened men. Uh, one of the, for me, the, one of the absolute core moments of the book was when Dara was interviewing women in a slum in New Delhi, and they kept looking beneath their saris, and Dara couldn't understand why they were looking beneath their saris, and then he saw the flash of a backlit screen. These women in this slum in New Delhi had smartphones. They had a plan, and they had the sum of human knowledge in their hands. Well, <clears throat> in a contest between the knowledge that's contained in a smartphone and a husband who wants a, more kids, we're banking on the women in the smartphones. I have to say that gendered analysis really comes out. I, I do say that the one thing that I really appreciate about this book is that you really got to sort of get the as a working mom myself, you know, the challenge, right? The the hopes and dreams and the, the, the cultural pressures, but certainly, as you say, you know, the world is now changing and there are a host of new opportunities before a lot of women and children are difficult. And, and having lots of children is just not in the cards for a lot of us. And, and you guys get that and I love it. I mean, I have to, I have to say, this was written by, I'm gonna give you guys as honorary titles of feminists if I may, because this was really <laughs> well done in getting into the heads of a lot of women and how they, how they think about this. And at the end of the day, it is a, a choice uh, to have more children and it's not determined destiny. It has to be, you know, uh, thoroughly planned. Well, and we think that's what, at its core, the United Nations Population Division is missing. Mm -hmm. There's no ill will in this, right? But the, the people who are determining the projections at the UNPD don't believe that anything is going to change, that the, the, as things have happened in previous decades, so they will continue to happen in decades ahead. And that's why they get the planet to 11 billion people by the end of the century. But they're not taking into account the incredible acceleration of urbanization that's taking place in the developing world. That's already taken place in the developed world where there are at least two dozen countries now where population is declining. And that urbanization is going at such a great clip in the developing world. That produces four effects. First, as you, as you alluded to, um, children stop being an economic asset in other pair of hands to work in the fields and they start to become economic liability. They're just another mouth to feed. More important, when women move from a rural environment to an urban environment, they become empowered. They get education. There are other women. There are media. And as they become more empowered, 
they make the same decision that women in, de in the developed world made a long time ago, which is fewer kids, stay in the job, focus on education. Um, and it's that acceleration of urbanization that is leading, we think, to much, uh, much lower population numbers than the UN would project. Absolutely, but let me push you guys on this. I know that you've mentioned, John, that you know this is not out of uh, out of ill, for example, that the the UN has these projections. But there is some politics behind this, right? I mean, on the one hand, we hear a lot about the carrying capacity of the Earth, so there is an environmental agenda, right? That you know this uh, warning bells that are being uh, rung by these UN agencies is about making us wake up to the reality that we are indeed, um, you know, destroying the the planet. Uh, and there's also, of course, a fiscal pressure. So even I work on organizations like the IMF and the World Bank, and they're constantly talking about overpopulation. And it's it's really about the fiscal constraint that these countries are facing. So, you know, I can't help maybe this is a political scientist and, you know, the whole adage of being a hammer, seeing everything as a nail. This is highly politicized, right? The international community and these organizations do want to see the population shrink because it is better for our environment and it's certainly better for a country's fiscal space if they don't have to spend all this money on people. So what I would say on that is John and I actually do share the concern about the environment. Uh, we do con share the concern about climate change. That's what this book, this book is not about that. In fact, people who have criticized it says that we didn't talk enough about it. But the truth is that's not what we set out to do. So you can take uh, the implications of this book and you can apply it to any one of these issues and you can maybe reevaluate where we're actually going. But one thing we were absolutely determined uh, to communicate uh, through this book is that what it starts with is good math. I mean, you really have to have good data. So great, you know, you have a communications message where you want to uh, ask people to worry about the, the future of the planet and how their various behaviors, their government's behaviors, their country's behaviors are going to impact that. But you don't need to scare them by giving them false numbers because what that does is it undermines the credibility of your message. So let's start with the right numbers, which is basically what we communicate in the book, and then we'll have a conversation. And we do look at the implications of a planet that's growing smaller. Remember, this has never happened before in all of human history, where we are deliberately making choices to have fewer than the 2.1 children on average that we need to have um, in order to sustain the population. So yeah, the, the news is all good on the environmental side, uh, partly because, yes, we'll, there will be fewer of us uh, straining the Earth's resources, and also because urbanization is actually good for the environment. It allows marginal farmland to return to bush, which is good in all sorts of different ways. <clears throat> Economically, though, things are not um, as encouraging as, as you might think. Yes, there are fewer people uh, that government has to provide resources for, but there are also fewer taxpayers. Most, all, all economies everywhere in the world are driven primarily by consumption. Uh, people buy things, especially young people. After you graduate, you, you know, the, the first house, the, the first car, uh, the, the baby stroller, uh, the simple black dress, all of the things that you acquire in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, these are the things that drive an economy. If you live in a society like the two dozen countries plus who are losing population every year, it means fewer young people every year. There are fewer 30-somethings than 40-somethings, fewer teenagers than 20-somethings, fewer people each year to drive your economy, both to pay the taxes needed to sustain the pensions and health care of all those old people who are you know, still around, uh, but also fewer people to drive consumption through uh, th through their own activities. So in fact, it becomes fiscally challenging 
not to have population growth um, rather than to have population growth. Well, I just want to note that there are people who talk about post-economic growth, right? You know, sort of thinking about beyond the consumption, because many would argue from, a Garrett, again, a very environmentalist, even left perspective, that, you know, we've got it all wrong, that we focus on evaluating and measuring our economy based on consumption. But that's for another day. I totally agree with you. This is the system we've got. Let's let's discuss the, the system we're in. So, of course, the one country that comes to mind is, is Japan always, when we think about this older society, uh, increasingly less productive. But, you know, even in in Japan, we're seeing just momentarily uh, perhaps some reprieve because they finally got the message that they need to include more women in the economy, right? So we're seeing a little bit of change in Japan right now, but the the numbers are still going to be daunting overall because, you know, you can get the the, the level of of women, uh, you know, at parity, uh, but eventually it doesn't change the underlying challenge, which is there's no birth rates here, um, and the population is declining. What stands out about Japan to you, Daryl? Well, Japan is losing about 450,000 people a year already. To the extent that they get more more women decide to engage in the economy, it also ca- has that same effect on the birth rate. So none of this is encouraging in terms of, uh, in terms of fo- for future population growth. I mean, the median age of the average Japanese person is now pushing 50. So, you know, 45 is usually the cutoff point when it comes to uh, fertility as we understand it in a conventional sense. So the only possible solution for Japan is you either have to get used to living uh, with a smaller population and a declining population, which is what they're trying to deal with now, or they have to open themselves up to immigration, which is really more of the Canadian solution uh, to this uh, to this problem. But uh, Japan has been, um, until now, incapable of even really considering the immigration solution. Uh, everything from you know a, uh, you know a blood-based re, uh, system for determining citizenship, through to an extremely complicated way to even apply for citizenship. Uh, also along with very few people who are expats actually deciding that they want to become Japanese and going through all of the efforts. So uh, they're in a, a really uh, difficult circumstance. Now, uh, it's funny, I was at a, um, a conference uh, actually with you. Yes, you in were. Hal- in, in Halifax oh, you uh, were. in uh, uh, last November. And I don't think you went to the same dinner that I did, but the one that we had was on demography. And we were talking about this issue. And there was a Japanese demographer who was at the, uh, at the table with us. And uh, he said, well, you know, what we're considering now is a... Um, uh, a guest worker program very similar to what they have in Dubai. Yep. So this idea that you would bring in people to fulfill those kinds of responsibilities. Now, of course, the issue that they have in Japan with that problem is they're getting into it so late that the access to people to be guest workers in countries that are rapidly becoming middle class and in which they're also having declining uh, and soon to be, uh, well, actually declining birth rates and at some point this century uh, declining populations, they may have got into the game too late. Uh, So it is interesting that they're considering that rather than simply saying, maybe we should actually open it up to real immigration. No, they want to go the route of Dubai. Well, I mean, you know, that's uh, a big challenge. And of course, Dubai, it's not a panacea. I mean, clearly, with the fact that you have 70% of the population born outside the country is is, without any rights at all, uh, also means that they have no attachment to your country. They tend to uh, not invest in the same way. They certainly um, have completely different perspective on the government. And I think there's a lot of internal challenges today inside uh, the United Arab Emirates. So it's certainly not a panacea. Um, John, what does this mean for Canada? I mean, your last book was about 
immigration and uh, what it means to us. Um, how does this? How is this a Canadian story? It puts Canada uh, at, a, at an almost unique advantage. One of the things that uh, we discovered as we were working on the book is that we were wrong on the immigration issue in part. We looked at all the countries that were declining in population, uh, countries in Eastern Europe, uh, some countries in Southern Europe, uh, countries in Eastern Asia, like such as Korea and Japan and Singapore, uh, Taiwan. And we, we said none of these countries accept immigrants, so the solution is immigration. But you know what? Immigration isn't really a solution unless you accompany it with some kind of integration or multiculturalism. So there are European countries that do accept immigrants, but they tend not to then successfully integrate them into the culture, which is not a case of integrating the immigrants into the host culture. It's a case of having the host culture itself be open to the immigrants and to itself changing to accommodate immigrants. So Canada is going to keep growing. Uh, we're going to get to around 50 billion people, million people by the middle of the century. We'll have passed Italy and Spain, and we'll be closing in on Germany. Um, and why? Well, because we have one of the highest immigration rates in the world, and we are successful at integrating those, those immigrants. Uh, and it is the, the, the nakedly self-interested economic argument that, that we have made uh, and convinced ourselves is true, because we know it is true, evidence shows us it's true, that will put Canada at a unique advantage going forward. It also, by the way, advantages the United States. If they don't commit demographic suicide by closing their borders, they are the only one of the great powers that has the ability to continue to bring in a million people a year uh, to grow their population. China will start losing people in a few years. China's going to lose hundreds of millions of people over the course of this century. Uh, Russia is in the same boat. Brazil is going to start losing population. The United States is uniquely uh, capable uh, of, of making the 21st century the American century, and as well as the 20th, if and only if they continue to welcome immigrants as they have in the past. Okay, so now we have the thorny question. I mean, what would you want Donald Trump to get from your book? Because, I mean, there are a lot of naysayers, and there are a lot of people today, particularly, you know, if you start to, to dig deep online, you start to see a lot of people who are saying that immigration is happening much too rapidly. Uh, and I dare uh, challenge Canadians to think this is just an American story. This is happening here in Canada. So what do we say to those naysayers? What would you say to Donald Trump, Daryl, to, to convince him that immigration is necessary for the long-term health of the country? Well, you've got two choices in any country. You can either have such a a positive natalist type of uh, approach to uh, how you're going to manage your population that uh, you know you can go to the way the hungry went where you know every uh, by the time you have three kids you're you're, you're never going to pay income tax well we know um, by looking at what's happened in the rest of the world it actually doesn't work I mean it might temporarily have some impact but it tends not to get you back up to replacement level because women don't want to have three kids well yeah they've changed it's, it's a, that's it's culture culture triumphs all of this and the culture, particularly for women around the world, is changing. I mean, that's the strong message out of the book. They've want to different, live different lives, and the effect of them living different lives is exactly what you described. But on the question of immigration, it doesn't have to be about humanitarian issues, although that's always part of it. It doesn't have to be about simply responding to what's coming your way. It also can be like the way that it's done in Canada, where we look at it as an economic policy, and we plan it out, and we actually basically recruit 
people to be immigrants in this country. Uh, the problem that you can run into is if it ever comes into question that you that, that is the purpose of your immigration system, if, if it looks, for example, to be a situation like we see at the southern border in the United States right now, or we see at the Quebec border here in, in Canada, uh, you can really undermine the credibility of that system. So it has to be a well-managed system with a purpose. In the United States, I think they've lost track of that. If Donald Trump could do anything, he could get back on top of that message and make it work for the United States because it is the place when we go out and do surveys that most people who want to immigrate in the world want to immigrate to. It's still the most popular um, uh, place for people to go to, to not just stop and work, but to live their lives. Canada usually comes up with Australia as number three or four, two, three or four. So we're in a, a good position with that too. But it only works if the public, the accepting the, the group of the, the population that lives in the country believes that it's in their own interest and it's a well-managed system that's going to pay off for them. The United States, they've lost the plot on that. And uh, I think they have to get back on it. And it needs serious leadership from the national level. In Canada, until we, and we're, I guess we're trying to deal with this right now, if we ever lose our ability to be able to make that claim, we could be in as much trouble as the United States. So what does the polling data say? I mean, you're the numbers guy. What does it say? The polling data of- says that uh, Canadians now have immigration as the number three or four issue, depending on the polls that you look at, uh, just behind health care and the economy. Uh, that's very, very dangerous because it's not a, an important issue because people think that what's going on is great. So uh, the, the challenge for the government is to get that border controlled, to get Canadians uh, believing that it is controlled, that the immigration system is, is being driven more by our desires and what we want rather than the demand of people simply crossing and making the choice on, on their own, and that, that we have the type of policy that John described about uh, described previously, which really relates to the successful integration for people so they can make a contribution to Canada right away. Okay, so let me, let, let, let's, let's tease that out a little bit further, John. What does successful integration look like? It looks like, for example, what we are doing with our foreign students program. Um, one of the big successes that this country has had is in quadrupling the number of foreign students who then uh, take the path to immigration. One of the things, uh, and, and by the way, where we've been good at this is in having both conservative and liberal governments embrace the same policies. So starting with Jean Chrétien, going through Paul Martin, then through you know, a decade of Stephen Harper, and now Justin Trudeau, we have bit by bit put into place uh, what is probably the world's best program for welcoming uh, foreign students. If you come into this country as a, as a university or college student, um, you automatically are guaranteed a, a work permit when you graduate, and you are automatically placed on the fast track uh, to permanent residence and, and to citizenship. Why wouldn't you do that? We know, for example, uh, that you're... Um, going to be a successful immigrant uh, because you're well-educated. How do we know that? We educated you. Uh, You're going to speak English or French. You would have to be able to speak English or French to be in our education system. You are young. So decades of taxation lie ahead in which you uh, help to pay for um, the pensions and health care of older people. Uh, And you get somebody who you know is going to be an enthusiastic and committed new Canadian because they have come here from around the world to study at our schools and decided to stay and endure our winters um, and contribute to our society. That's the kind of program 
that is so self-evidently good for everyone involved. It's good for the immigrant who's coming here, and it's great for the country because of the very, very high-quality immigrant that we get, that you would have to just be overtly racist to say, no, we don't want those people in our country. We don't want those young, educated, tax-paying, fully uh, integrated citizens in our country for reasons that do not bear close examination. So I'm an absolute fan of this program. I love this program, but let me play devil's advocate, okay? And this is complete devil's advocate. One, don't we need people who want to do the jobs that a lot of Canadians don't want to do? I mean, do we need more? I mean, as a, as a professor here, it's really difficult to talk to students about doing further higher and higher education. The job market isn't there. What we do need, however, where you do see job ads are for those unskilled labor, Right. So, I mean, is there a mismatch, though, in terms of, you know, bringing in all of these students and not filling in the labor market for that unskilled, the, you know, the typical what you hear in the United States often, you know, whether it's Bill Maher and all these other jokers who are talking about not jokers, comedians, sorry, who talk about, you know, people need to come here to do the jobs that Americans don't want to do. I mean, are we ignoring that part of the labor segment that would be captured by this irregular flow of migrants? I'll leap in, Daryl, just because I was looking at it not that long ago. Um we would be, except we already have an, another program for that. I mean, that's ex- express entry, right? That is the um, provincial nomination program where provinces are able to look at their own job shortages. Very often, they could be things like truck drivers or drywallers or um, other skilled, quote, blue-collar, unquote, um, professions, and then look at the pool of applicants to, to Canada, not, not the... The, the students, applicants, just those who would like to come to our country and say, oh, look, there's a truck driver in the Philippines. Uh, there's a drywaller in India. Uh, they want to come in. We'll bring them in under the provincial nominee program. So again, uh, it is properly handled, and our immigration system is, for the most part, properly handled. It is both on the student side and on the on the provincial nominee side, a great way to fill in all the labor gaps. We need the entrepreneurs. We need the brilliant scientists uh, that we're getting from uh, our education system. And yes, we also need uh, blue-collar jobs that are the where there are serious shortages, and we're looking after that too. As long as we can make this argument to all Canadians that it profits you in your life, in your business, on your street to have new Canadians, and you can see that happening in your life, in your business, on your street, then we will. Then this policy will succeed. It's only when we try to tell people you have a moral obligation, you have a duty, these people need our charity, that you start to get kicked back. And that's why we should, as much as possible, you know, outside the refugee stream, uh, avoid those, that kind of argument. I totally agree. I think making the business case is how you win over the Canadian public. You know, it's it's not enough to talk about this from a humanitarian perspective. Yes, that might be the normative moral thing to do, but it also makes good business. We know that. We know that from, you know, enormous amount of research, including some of my own, I'm going to make the plug, diversity dividend report that we've done here for CG. When you bring ethnocultural diversity into the workplace, it means more profits. It means more revenue. And that's because you bring a diversity of ideas. Diversity of ideas is useful for any business enterprise. And certainly, I think the Canadian economy has benefited from immigrants, but we're losing touch with that story. There are a lot of naysayers out there. And Daryl, you're a, an avid watcher of the polls. And, you know, you've you've commented on this. We've had conversations about this, that there are 
a lot of naysayers and they're growing in this country. And they're finding even, you know, dare I say, some political parties like the PP party. I love saying PP party, by the way. Um, you know, there are naysayers out there and they're growing in number and strength. Uh, what do you say to them? Well, I actually don't think they're growing in number and strength. Okay, <laughs> I'm glad that, to hear. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the fact that the PP party has had such a dreadful time uh, getting off the ground and, and uh, has uh, enormous difficulty even nominating candidates. Uh, I think it's, it makes for an interesting media story, but for from uh, as a political fact, it's it's really not that present. Um, it, it's it's basically Maxime Bernier's temper tantrum. Will they get 2% of the vote in the next election? Maybe. Is it going to be decisive? No, it will not be. Uh, but um, I g- I'll give you another title for the next report you do on this. Diversity Necessity. I like it. Yeah, we don't. And in fact, this is one of the things that I, I argue when I go out and talk to people about it. We don't have um, the luxury, and, and it's the wrong way to put it, but we don't have the, the room for the stupidity to not allow as many people into whatever it is that we're doing, uh, in, for example, in business that we may used to have had the luxury to do. Yeah. Uh, whether it's women, whether it's, uh, interestingly enough, whether it's older people, whether it's older people, whether it's people from different, different ethno-cultural or religious backgrounds, we have a labor shortage in this country, particularly a skilled labor shortage in this country. And every business is going to have to open itself up to the idea that diversity is necessary because that's the only way that you're going to be able to meet the labor demands that you have. So um, my view is that uh, this is the future of Canada. And, and who's ever pushing against that uh, is, is pushing against the door that is forever closed and in, in, in which more locks are being, uh, are, are being shut. Um, you know, the idea, for example, in Toronto that you could be a racist and be successful these days, well, 52% of the population was born in another country. And I ask people who aren't from a place like Toronto, say if I'm out in a, you know, one of the western or eastern provinces, and particularly in a rural area, saying, can you imagine if you went down to the center of town and you turned around in a 360-degree circle that every second person who walked by you was born in another country? And they're as every bit as Canadian as anybody else who's walking <laughs> walking around the other side. So, um, you know, that is the future of our country. Uh, I, I, I would agree with John. It's, it's, it's part of our advantage. It's a triumph, actually, that we've been able to, to do this in Canada. And particularly if you do as travel as much as you do, Besma, and, and I know John does and I do, where you go around the world and you see different countries having such a problem with this, it's something that we should celebrate in this country, not in a maudlin, uh, you know, th- chest-thumping kind of uh, tearful sort of way, but in just a, you know, a, a quiet understanding that this is a society that functions well. That's what I love about your book is that you really get to, you know, again, you, with data and stories, with the two combined together, and that's really the two of your great minds put together to make this great book, allows us to sort of get through the noise because there's just so much noise at the moment. We have to admit there's a lot of it out there, but you guys effectively make the case that this is, as you say, a necessity. The empty planet is before us and we need to do something. John, final words. Remember one thing. About 20 years ago, Canada brought most of its, the the single biggest source country for immigrants to Canada was China. Now China is a poor third because the Chinese population is not only stable, it has started to decline, will soon start to decline. Uh, Our biggest source country, I think last year was India. Well, India just hit replacement rate. India is now at 2.1. So in about a generation, India is going to start seeing its population start to decline. Our, our other major source of immigrants is the Philippines. Well, if you look at the Philippine press, they're starting to write stories about how rapidly their population uh, fertility rate is going down. Their, their villages are emptying out and everyone's heading to Manila. 
So, you know, in the medium term, in, in, two, in two or three decades from now, countries are going to have trouble finding countries that can send them immigrants. We may be in a competition uh, for immigrants in a world where most countries are at or below f- uh, replacement rate. The in, so don't, don't think of Empty Planet as a story about what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years. Think of Empty Planet as a story about what's happening right now in your society as people make the decisions in Canada, in Latin America, um, in Europe, in the Middle East, even now in sub-Saharan Africa where fertility rates are falling fast. Uh, these decisions are being made now. They will, are being played out in, our, in societies, in economic growth, in, in, in geopolitical uh, changes today. This is not a story about uh, the, the distant future. Empty Planet is a story you should read, we would like to suggest, because it tells you and it helps to explain why things are happening right now in your world. Absolutely. Thank you again, uh, Daryl and John. This is a great book, Empty Planet, and congratulations on the review in the New York Times. Uh, this book is available today, and it's uh, published by McClellan and Stewart. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. I'm Dr. Andrew Thompson, Program Officer at the Balsey School of International Affairs. The Canada and World Podcast is produced by the Balsey School of International Affairs and OpenCanada.org. Please subscribe to this podcast. The latest episode will be downloaded right to your phone so you don't miss an episode and can listen on the go. Canada and the World can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and your favorite Android podcasting apps. If you'd like to know more about the Balsey School and our graduate programs, please visit balseyschool.ca and feel free to reach out to us.